Welcome to the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Founder Pack Podcast, where your host, Brendan Rod, brings startup stories from experienced founders and other functional experts to help current and future founders get inspired and grow their knowledge with quick tactical insights. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hey, Damien. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brendan. Thanks for having me. Thank you for taking the time. How is your week going so far? What's going on in your world? I'm just uh, getting settled from back into work from more of a summer vacation mode and uh, a little bit nervous and uh, excited about a, a baby coming. We're having a baby girl in a week or two. So yeah, a little. my life's going to change a bit soon. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, congratulations. And I'm, I'm excited about today's conversation. We're going to be covering remote work, the rising rates for developers, how to hire and recruit top-notch developers and more. But before we jump in, perhaps you could just share a little bit about you, your background and your company and anything else you'd like to share. Sure. Yeah, well, I I started Scalable Path back in 2010. I think uh, the impetus for that was I was uh, managing a team of software developers in India for a digital agency in San Francisco. And uh, I was up, you know, at 11 at night in the dark communicating with the US and thinking to myself, uh, this is not optimal. And when I came back to the US, I started working with some developers in Latin America and it worked really well and kind of split off from my previous company and, and started working with, with talent down there and, and sort of grew from there. And now we have a platform with over 25,000 developer profiles. And yeah, we, we, we help companies find software developers, project managers, designers, data scientists, basically technologists. So. That's what my company does. So your your company was kind of born out of that classical. I'm solving a problem that I experienced for myself, and that's where you saw a product market solution. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think you could say that's true. And uh, I mean, I I did see a quote recently. You know, an entrepreneur is someone who jumps off a cliff and then builds a plane on the way down. And I thought that was a little bit overdramatic. I mean, we, we didn't have to do anything crazy like that. We just, my previous company became uh, our first client and we had business right away and we just grew organically and insanely from there. It wasn't a crazy risk or anything. We just grew, grew slowly over time. There was a recent controversial podcast episode with Malcolm Gladwell, and we were chatting off camera that you had some thoughts and opinions on that. Yeah, yeah, there's been a lot of um, influential people weighing in on, on remote work lately. Elon Musk, for example, and then just the other day, Malcolm Gladwell. You know, I think both of them are going counter to a trend toward remote work that is going to be really hard to stop because remote work is so compelling for so many reasons. And I'll just list a few and end with the most important reason, but you know, it saves companies and employees money. 
it saves people time. They don't have to spend time in their car commuting. They don't spend money on gas commuting. They don't burn fossil fuels and emit greenhouse gases while they're commuting to work. People are often more productive uh, without interruptions at the office. But most importantly, people want to work remotely. You know, there's a large and growing number of talented people out there that have gotten a taste of it and they want to keep it. They want to have the ability to spend at least part of their time working wherever they want. And if you are an employer and you're not open to that, then you're going to miss out on those people. And those are, there's some very talented people. I mean, I just ask yourself, you know, do you want to work remotely at least part of the time? Well, let me ask you that. Definitely. So I'll give you my feelings uh, in more than just the one word answer. I, I used to hate remote um, because I was just, I wasn't used to it. I only knew one way. And I also didn't have the infrastructure in my living environment to work remotely. But then once I started working remotely and then the infrastructure started coming along and I understood what remote really meant for me, I was like, wow, I can never go back after this. But with the caveat of, for me, it's not black and white. I do feel like it's important to have that FaceTime with the team. So I think hybrid, it's it's a good middle ground. Maybe it doesn't have to be three times a week, but for me, I think once a week or maybe twice a month, you know, it's enough, but that's just my personal mm -hmm. opinion. Yeah. I think that, you know, it depends on the individual. It depends on your role. I mean, Elon Musk was saying, everybody has to come back to the office. You're just pretending to work or, but you know, if, if you're, yeah, if you're working on a manufacturing line at Tesla, yeah, you gotta go to work. There's no question. But if you are writing code or if you're doing marketing and all you do is sit in your laptop and you get on Zoom and Slack with people all day, even if they're in the same office, half the time you're on Zoom and Slack with them anyway. So uh, and I have a friend who goes into the office. He says, hey, I ride my bike into the office and I go there and there's no one there. <laughs> I have it all to myself. It's amazing. Like it, the office is not always even a place where you connect with people yeah so. there, there's this hilarious meme that i saw a couple of weeks back where it's like come and join our amazing culture and environment <laughs> and then there's like a desk with a phone sitting there in this cubicle and everything else is dead around there's no employees <laughs> so i was like yeah that that could ring true for, for many companies totally. at the moment. But one thing I would also add just before I let you continue, I also feel the productivity aspect is huge. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm working from home versus in the office. You know, there's so many more distractions personally that, than working from home. Yeah. I mean, yet again, individuals, like certain individuals, like I'm the type of person who can does not have a problem focusing. You know, there are probably some subset of people who might get uh, 
distracted, you know, or feel temptation to. Sometimes it's not you. People are coming to knock on your door. Oh, totally. or, yeah. That, that is uh, undeniable, right? Like people coming to your coworkers, coming to chat with you, whether it's for work or not. Um, that's, that happens. That's a huge factor, right? People, you ask people, you know, or yourself, like if you've got a big deadline, like you've got a big project that's got to get done, where are you going to go to get it done? You're probably not going to go to your office because that's not where you're going to get that real focused time. You're going to go somewhere quiet, like work in the morning where no one can bother you or at your home office or, you know, a library. That's where you get real focused work done. Yeah. Before we move on to the next bullet points, do you want to add anything else to what Malcolm Gladwell had to say in his podcast? Well, yeah, he was saying, oh, you know, you can't be a part of something. You, you, wanna, you are what you do. And I would totally disagree that you can't feel like you're a part of something uh, and be remote. I mean, I mean I'm on t- like probably two or three maybe four meetings every day with different teams and you know you hop on the zoom and maybe the first couple minutes you're all kind of joking around chit-chatting kind of sharing stories and then you know the rest of the meeting you're, you're doing work but you're you know if if you're all working together toward a common cause like the mission of the company like that feeling is not limited to being in the office and and uh, one woman I work with, you know, she said, I'm more fulfilled in this job that's 100% remote than I've been in any other job. And my last job was in the office and it was a totally toxic environment. So it's, that is not a fair thing to say about remote. It, it you know, feeling like you're part of something does not really matter whether you're in an office or not. And do you think it was like, hundred percent genuine or do you think he was trying to get clicks and impressions and people talking like yeah i i totally totally agree with you on that i mean that there's a term that i recently became familiar with called edgelord and you know i had to google it when someone called elon musk an edgelord but i think gladwell's doing something similar where you're just being contrarian in order to get attention and, and maybe that's what they're doing. Uh, or maybe it's that people at the top of companies at the top of organizations feel more comfortable or secure in it, or, and and they, they're probably working remotely anyway, but they want their people coming in for some reason. I don't get it, but I can tell you this, that (laughs) I saw a headline everybody's over against work except the workers, (laughs) you know, like, and the thing is that workers matter, that workers opinions matter, and they're getting more and more power in the relationship between the employer and employee. And it kind of comes back to my main point is that the workers want it, the people want it. And if you want to attract the best people who want that, you're going to have to kind of give in to what, what they want a bit. It's not about just the company setting the terms. Yes, and I think that this remote work framework is still um, feeling itself out and like, you know, CEOs and managers need to work out 
the kinks in how you get the best of both worlds and cater to Gen Z and millennials, baby boomers. Without putting you on the spot, are you a boomer or millennial? How do you classify? What am I? Am I? I was born in 1975. So am I Gen X? I think you're Gen X. Yes. So the reason I'm asking you that is I think it's uncommon in the in the mindset of Gen Xers and probably boomers as well, to be f- pro-remote, that there's this feeling that it's mostly like millennials and Gen X C- CEOs and, le- and leaders that are more accommodating and, and understand, you know, this shift and are embracing it. Yeah, I, I, I think maybe it also has to do with that... I'm in the software startup space and, and in this is one space where it's just absolutely become the norm, you know, if, but if you go outside of that into other domains like finance, they're really fighting it, but I don't know. We will, we will see. I I think a lot of trends start here in Silicon Valley and then they spread from there. And I think that you're getting some pushback right now, but it will eventually infiltrate other people, other industries will see the light and uh, it'll, it'll slowly permeate into other industries. But I think that, that the, the software startup space is probably the leading edge of, of the trend. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic and we could definitely spend a whole episode breaking it down. But I, there's so many great topics that I want to chat to you with about today. So we'll have to move on to the next one. There's another challenge now, which is the, the rising rates for developers, the high demand. How do you propose startups and even just regular companies compete, overcome these challenges? Is it just like suck it up and pay more? Or do you have other strategies for getting around this issue? Well, before I go into that question of like how, what's your strategy for um, overcoming that? I I do think that there are some trends that are influencing this. Um, You know, number one would be just the software industry in general is a very strong industry. It's healthy. Um, You know, during COVID, when a lot of industries were really crippled, software just was even invigorated because it was an area that was enabling us. It's always been something that you can do from anywhere, um, whether you're using software or working on software. Companies like Zoom just went through the roof. You know, people needed more online tools when they were in their homes quarantining. So the software industry boomed and, and, that created demand. You know, there was a lot of venture capital investment going on during that time. And at the same time, um, you know, there aren't, at least in the United States, there's still, um, our, our education system hasn't, you know, caught up to producing high quality developers, um, to the level that demand requires. And, so there's there's a sort of a limited supply. There there's more people entering into the market, but there's still when you're looking for really good developers, there's a particularly limited supply. 
So can, and then you can I yeah. can we segue for a second or or take a side track? I why is the US not up to the level of of other countries like Israel, um Ukraine, Russia, Romania, you, you talk about Latin America. What do they have that the US doesn't have? You know, I'm not an expert on that subject, but my gut tells me that it's the tide is turning a little bit here. I do think you you and I don't have stats to back this up, but at least when I was growing up, I think that a typical path for a lot of people was getting more of like a liberal arts degree. And I think in other countries, they do a better job at elementary level all the way up through university, like teaching math and science. And um, there's more of an interest in young people in learning those subjects and those skills in the US, maybe I, I don't know what it was, but I, I personally, the first time around, didn't feel like going in and killing myself in undergraduate doing studying calculus. I, I just kind of was like a lot of kids, I was just kind of going to college and trying to have a great time and learn things that were like interesting to me. And at that time, math and computer science wasn't that interesting to me. Um, it took a little bit of a real world reality check for me in my twenties that my degree in geography wasn't going to take me where I wanted in my career. And I ended up going back and doing the hard work and getting a second bachelor's in computer science and doing all the math. But I, I think to answer your question, I just think our our country hasn't doesn't do a great job teaching math and, and things that lead into things like computer science and, and getting young people motivated and interested in pursuing those careers. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And sorry for interrupting your train of thought. Um, do you remember where you were or should I? Oh, yeah. So we were just saying like w what the trends were that were, that were putting the pressure on, on rates to go up. And, and so, you know, one of the strat, what I would say to people who are trying to hire, it's sort of common sense advice. I would say it's like be flexible. We were talking about remote, like be open, keep an open mind to different ways of hiring and different model ways of engaging with people, whether it's in the office or remote or as full time employees or or contractors or through agencies, I would try a wide array of approaches. You know, you could try to get referrals from your network of employees. You could post on job boards. You could engage with recruiters. You could try development companies or agencies and see what works, you know, and, and just keep an open mind. See what, if make sure, like, if you want to be sure in this marketplace of global talent and tech talent that you are getting the best value that you can, you, you want to make sure that you're trying lots of different parts of this market. And then you start being able to compare different options. And then you, if you've done your research and spread a wide net, and then you can see, okay, well, I, we've spent the past month trying to fill this role through these channels. And now this, these are our options. 
we're picking the best option that we can and we're going to go with it. So kind of common sense results, but, or uh, common sense advice, but that's what I would say. Yeah. And it makes sense. So no pun intended, but can we also take it one level deeper now and maybe go into more of the strategies and tactics and kind of success let's say cases you've seen in order to hire top talent efficiently, quickly, successfully? I mean, are, are we talking about how do you sell yourself as a company or how do you make yourself attractive as a company here? Is that? Yes. You... With the high demand, how do you, how do you increase your chances of success in getting that top talent? Well, it kind of goes back to my previous comment. I think you should try lots of different things. And there's a little bit of, you know, it's not a level marketplace. There are individuals who might have the same results for you or someone even that would have better results for you who you could be significantly less expensive than someone else. I mean, there's the global marketplace, you know, and there's different costs of living in different countries. And if you're open, and that, that's one thing that remote enables is, is, which is a huge advantage that we didn't even tap into or didn't even talk about is, is tapping into a global talent pool. Once you, once you embrace remote, you can hire anywhere. And for example, you're going to be living in Brazil soon. You know, your cost of living is going to be less. Brazil is a huge country. That's Brazil is our number one country that, that my company sources talent from for software developers. It works great for um, the U S and it works great for Europe. And if you can tap into markets where the cost of living is less, both parties can win. You know, the developer can be making a bit more than they would make working for a local company there. And the company can be paying less than they would be paying for a local developer and everyone's happy and, and doing better financially than they would if they were just working within their own country's economy. If we will look at some of the other levers that one can pull in trying to hire this talent, I think you mentioned the technology, the company values, mission, job description. Can you maybe spend a few minutes just sort of wrapping that? into the mix yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've been talking a lot about money. I mean, yeah, that matters to people. If you want to make your company attractive and attract good developers, that's always going to be a reason why people will work for you if you pay well. But I think for developers, perhaps even a greater motivator is working on cutting-edge technology, working on technology stacks that are going to increase their own value in the marketplace. Like I know developers who will work for significantly less if they think that the technology that that company is using is going to be in higher demand in the future. Not only do they find it more interesting to work on cool and new technologies, but they want to future-proof their career and be able to have it on their resume. Like if you're a mobile developer and you're getting a chance to work on a Flutter project, people are like, yeah, I want to do that. I'll, I'll take a little pay cut even to work on that because it's cool. And I think that's where the industry is going. Um, 
you know, if you've got a old legacy code base, that's a mess and a developer got to, you know, get in there and figure out all your messy code and, um, work in a dated technology versus getting to write a project from scratch themselves in a cutting edge stack like node or Python, um, you know, they're going to take that. They might even take it for less money. So, um, that's a huge, your tech stack makes a difference. Um, and then of course people, as we said before, they want to be part of something. They want to feel like, um, they're, they have a purpose. And, um, if your company helps people or has a mission that they can get behind, um, you definitely want to share, you know, hone, hone what your mission is and, and share that in your job description and share that when you're trying to reach people, because that really matters. I mean, all of these things kind of matter in different degrees to different individuals, but that's a huge, um, a huge influencing factor for, especially I think younger generations that probably like boomers and even Gen Xers don't really relate to as much. I've noticed it more with, with younger individuals, um, that, that really matters to them. And then culture, I mean, you know, we, we kind of experience this a lot in the, in the dev world and the dev world, like, you know, kind of a culture of trust and, and respect. I mean, there's, with all this remote work, there's kind of this thing that's being worked out about like surveillance and what's okay and what's not. And, you know, some companies are trying to use tools like Hubstaff Tracker that, you know, take screenshots of your screen while you're working and manage your, your keyboard activity. And I just, I understand why companies want to do that, but it's generally like off-putting to to talent and to, 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 to employees. And, and I think that they want to feel trusted and not like they're like big brothers looking over their shoulder all the time. And so finding the right balance of like, cause it's really hard in, in a remote world, you, you don't, you can't see who's actually working. So you want to measure them. And that's a valid, that's a valid desire to, and companies that are going to succeed in, in the remote workspace are going to be ones that measure performance, not just time in the office, right? And so you're kind of coming up with these like KPIs to measure individuals. And that's something we've got to come to terms with as everything, every company is going to have to do this. And, and we're, do, we're dealing with it ourselves. Like, how do you measure someone's productivity without being a creepy big brother? Because you do want to know how people are performing that's a valid desire but you don't want to alienate them so yeah and then of course you got to put all of these variables that we're talking about like compensation technology your values your culture into a really solid job description and put that out there so writing a great job description that is going to attract those people that you want to find is is hugely important so just some thoughts there Yeah, no, those are great points. Perhaps maybe to wrap up this portion of the show, would you, can you speak to the differences in um, hiring 
you know, Gen Z developers versus, you know, maybe millennials or um, boomers, Gen Xers. Do you see any major differences personally that you think are worth commenting on? I think, you know, I, the one that I said already was kind of the one that, 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 that I've seen, like the younger generations, I think, put a higher priority on values and mission. They want to feel like, like they've made a choice in their lives that they're going to work on something meaningful and that does good in the world. And I think that's a great thing that people are making a priority as they come out of, you know, the education system nowadays. Um, but I would also just say that that's not really related to different generations per se, just that in the technology space, things change so quickly. Like you could be a JavaScript developer and, you know, one year, you know, jQuery comes out and the next year it's like Moo tools. And, and then the next year it's, you know, Backbone and then it's Angular and React and then Vue and Svelte. And there's always some new framework coming out and you always have to be learning. And I think that that ability to learn new things and change how you think about coding is probably the most important attribute that you can have as a developer or and look for as a as, as someone hiring you, you know it's not just someone who's good at coding right now in the technology stack that you have like there's other soft skills that are more important um then just rolling that back to your question about hiring in different generations, things change so quickly that someone who's three years out of college could actually be super good at a certain technology, better at a, at a new cutting edge technology than someone who's been coding for 20 years. Yes, that 20 years of experience is worth something, but the way that um, programming paradigms are changing, like, event-driven programming languages like JavaScript. Like if you've doing 20 years of coding in a, you know, procedural way, and then you're, you need to shift the way your brain thinks toward event-based. Like if you went through school learning the new event-based way, you might be way better at, at thinking in that way and coding in that way with a modern framework than someone who's, 40 years old and, and, and had 20 years of experience, but that's not to say that that 40 year old person couldn't have taken the time to educate themselves and, and learn new things and, and shift the way they think too. Maybe for me, the, the takeaway is that also having other than the ones you mentioned is having diversity. Yeah, um, there's definitely, uh, the development world is not the most gender diverse uh, world. Uh, that is for sure. I, I don't really know all of the reasons, and that's a whole other subject. But yeah, the women are are underrepresented in this segment. Yes, not just in coding, unfortunately. But shifting into another discussion, I think it was your team or you wrote an article um, many years ago 
And I would assume it still holds true today, but it would just be interesting to reflect on if you still um, agree with what you wrote back then. I think the article was called Seven Qualities That Differentiate a Great Programmer from a Good Programmer. Um, would you kind of run us through that quickly as well, just for the sake of our time here today? Yeah, yeah. And I kind of touched on that a, a moment ago when I was saying that you know, the ability to learn quickly, teach yourself new things is probably the most important quality. That's one of the qualities that we mention in that article. And, and the gist of that article is really that, you know, when you think I've got to hire a developer, you might think I want the person who's the best at coding, you know, my app, right? Like who, if my app is a PHP and you know, it's a Laravel and React app. I want the best Laravel and React coder. But I think that's a kind of short-sighted and 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 not optimal way to look at things. And and the the main point of the article is that there's other soft skills that are probably more important than someone how someone's gonna perform on a test in your code stack. Like you want to work with someone who has a positive attitude. You want to work with someone who has great communication skills, someone who knows how to manage their time and, and manage you, you know, as a, as their boss, you know, like ask, you know, if they're managing up, right. As we said, quick learning ability, definitely having deep and broad technical experience is an important characteristic but i'd put it down there around like five out of seven and you know of course things like being a good team player like when you're doing a big release and it's time to everybody to kind of suck it up and put in some extra hours to get this release out the door are they gonna be there and pull through for you and have a good attitude that's a huge characteristic that you want and um you know, keeping the right focus while they're coding, thinking about the big picture, like thinking about the end user, thinking about how the changes they might make in one area of the code base might affect um, other parts of the code base. Those ways of thinking and those other soft skills are, are more important than just, you know, if they really know a certain programming language really well. And I, excuse me for the potentially dumb question. I'm not from the, the developer world, but how important is critical thinking as a developer or is that a given that you should have that quality? I mean, critical thinking is, is a skill I think that underlies even is more fundamental than the skills that that we're talking about and and i think when we were talking earlier about education in our country i mean i think that we should be teaching critical thinking more and and i think it's a hugely important skill more probably more importantly just in in life in general um but definitely applies to um the role of a software developer and would be a fundamental skill in a few of the of the higher level skills that we mentioned like keeping a big picture focus and thinking about how the user would experience the product that they're working on it's involved in self-learning i bet um it's involved in 
time management. It's involved in a lot of the important soft skills that are more important attributes of a developer than than just coding language skills. Yeah, I would I would wholeheartedly agree with that. So if I will put my critical thinking cap on for a second, perhaps the salary piece could put more focus on those soft skills, critical thinking, and then find someone that's cheaper but has those core traits, but they're still a good developer. And therefore, you, you're kind of figuring out how to maximize on your budget by looking for the right things and not just going like expensive doesn't automatically equal better, I guess is my no, point no. here. I mean, it'll eventually, people will eventually like, that's just the, the f- function of, of employment. But yeah, some of the best people I've worked with as a CEO they might've been quite affordable. And in fact, sometimes their rate was so affordable that you almost think sometimes if someone quotes a very affordable rate to you, you might think, oh, they're not, they're not as good. Like that's a kind of a weird bias we have as uh, consumers. I remember I learned it as a kid. There was like two airplanes at a store, these like wind up airplanes. And I, I bought the more expensive one because I thought it was going to be better. And my friend bought the less expensive one and it was better. And I learned that lesson early on. And, and, um, there's been a few instances where in my career as a manager, like you really recognize that someone who might be quite affordable is super talented. And it's often because of these other skills that you notice they're just a go-getter. They, they have a really great attitude. They are eager in their career. Uh, they're smart. They turn things around quickly. They anticipate needs. And those, those people, sometimes you, if you identify them, you can get a good value out of them, but you also have to reward them. Right. And if you just don't, increase their pay as, as you lean more on them, as they become more important to your company, then they may get poached. So eventually they hopefully they're reach, reach an equilibrium because they are worth it. They are, they do have a value and you need to compensate them for their value. So, you know, there, there's kind of a weird balance here where, yeah, you do want to find value as an employer, but not too much because you want to, give you want to be fair and you want to compensate people for their contributions not only because it feels right but also because if you don't then someone else will and uh you might lose that person you wrote another article that i wanted to touch on seven reasons to choose latin america for your development outsourcing um, so is Latin America still a hotbed for talent or have other markets opened up and taken the lead? Yeah, it's still super hot. I would say it's still the hottest. I mean, I think other other regions that come to mind for, for software outsourcing or finding remote software developers, you know, that come to mind were, you know, India, of course, was like a leader, right? There was... That's in the past. And then Eastern Europe 
um, has always, not always, but before Latin America was a strong source of well-educated technical thinking engineers. And Latin America was a little behind the curve on, on getting into software development, but they did invest in their education system and started turning out a high number. There's a, there's a good population basis there and, and around, you know, cities like Bogota and Sao Paulo and Rio and Buenos Aires. And they started producing a lot of talented young developers and then they had an advantage, I think, on the time zone over these other geographies when you're talking about the U.S. market. And to some extent, I mean, Eastern Europe is great for the Western European market, but for the market I'm in, in the U.S. and Silicon Valley, Latin America has a massive time zone advantage for real-time collaboration. Additionally, the culture in Latin America heavily influenced by European Western culture. So there tended to be a good cultural affinity to working with. It, it's easy to get along with developers from that region and, and find commonalities. Like sometimes I noticed when I was working in India and I've working with other developers in Asia, in that culture, it's a little bit traditionally harder for people to be comfortable with conflict, particular with people with that are thought to be in a more senior position with them with within an organization. So there might be a hesitance to speak up if something was wrong or maybe voice a differing opinion. That's a little more of a of a of course you cannot, you know, stereotype or generalize like that's all comes down to individuals. But as a as a general rule, I feel like in my experience that there's been more of a ability for developers in Latin America to speak their minds and maybe raise flags if there's a problem on a software project, which is valuable. That's a fascinating topic actually to, uh, to, to take into account the cultural norms of, of each um, country and continent uh, because I, I guess you would recommend that if you're going to work, it's it's important to learn the cultural differences when you're going to work with cultures you have had little, you know, interaction with in the past. Yeah, yeah. There was even a, a study, I think it was about, I, I think that there was something about air traffic control accidents. Um, it was like the, the study that kind of demonstrated this cultural difference where... I think that in this study, certain air traffic controllers in Asian countries were not raising red flag situations to their superiors. If the superior, I, I don't know the exact details, but it led to more accidents because people were not comfortable speaking up when something was going wrong. And so I, you know, I, I want to be really careful generalizing and, and putting people from different areas into, you know, and stereotyping them because I've worked with some very excellent developers from all over the globe. And there are definitely people in any country that could be capable of being an excellent communicator and those that could be not. So you really have to evaluate people on an individual basis, but those are as a general rule, there is a cultural affinity between the geography of Latin America and 
and the countries like the United States that have been influenced by Western culture. Thank you for sharing. It's, it's, I think it's important to look into and understand. I thought of something to close out the, the episode with. One of the founders in my group recently posted, and I'll keep him anonymous, of course. He had like a rant that he wanted to get off his chest, and it's something that I think would, would close the session out nicely because it's, uh, this is an area of your expertise. So I'm going to just kind of read his post here and see what your thoughts are. So he wrote just a rant trying to identify and vet out companies to get more developers on board. Talking to a slew of companies that offer everything from dedicated developers, project-based engagements, and fully outsourced product development companies. And it seems like extremely bloated quotes are the norm of the day. As part of our vetting and interviewing process, we have been asking companies for a detailed plan and quote on a project that we have already completed. It took us two weeks with a fraction of one developer's time and cost $300. The pricing and timeline we are getting are beyond irrational. Two to three months with two developers and 50k price tag in dollars as one example. Have any of you fellow founders run into such howlers? It seems like it will be a huge time savings to have a list of companies to avoid. Crowdsourced between fellow founders. Sadly, a lot of these companies were referred to us by others. We're yet to talk to a company that gives us a rational estimate so that we can actually talk to them about our real needs. Frustrating. <laughs> and by the way, I referred him to you. So there you go for your time on. <laughs> Hopefully oh, okay, that will cool. <laughs> lead to something for, for your time on today's episode. But I, what are your thoughts in response to that? Is that something you're familiar with and something that your platform would resolve? Any advice for him? Well, I'm very familiar with that subject. Uh, number one, the different engagement models of, you know, hourly versus project based where you do fixed bid. And I did some fixed bid projects in the past and I quickly realized how difficult the the problem of software project estimation is and it's actually one of my things i've really dived into deeply i have a article called how to write a accurate software project estimate probably not the exact name of the blog post but we used to, we even built a tool that that we recently converted back into a google spreadsheet that was that's for estimating software projects but the pitfalls in that system are in estimation and not having a crystal ball have led me to work only on an hourly basis. And so, you know, what I would say to your friend is that if you engage with someone on an hourly basis and you engage with them, you know, you, you meet with them like on a regular basis, like we suggest a daily scrum like put 15 minutes on the calendar every day. So if you've got a project and you, 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 it's about finding the right individual developer or team of individuals that you believe have the, the traits that you want and can trust. That's the number one thing. And then you have to 
manage them or, you know, have someone on your team or someone on that team that manages them who you trust, but you won't get, if, if a company like, like our company, like scalable path, like if we can bill hourly, we don't have to pad estimates because we know that there's no risk of misunderstanding the, the requirements and then losing money on a fixed bid project. You can just put a reasonable markup on each hour. And then if you've got a talented developer who has the skills and they're being given well-defined tasks, they're going to work efficiently to complete that. And the project will take what it should take. And the client won't be billed an outrageous sum. And the developer will be paid for all of their time and everyone will be happy and they can even have a more collaborative work relationship because when you do a fixed bid, you have to spend a lot more time upfront defining every little requirement, which is actually not even healthy, right? Or else you have to take time out during the project to do change orders, which are time consuming and kind of confrontational. And if you work in a more agile hourly basis, you don't have to spend an exorbitant amount of time doing the project estimate up front. You can just do, you can spend, I recommend spending a few hours uh, defining your project, doing an est, then getting a very wide estimate. Like you might say, well, this is going to take 20 to $30,000. There's a, you should always be talking about ranges, but you just get a ballpark. Okay. Are we generally aligned on what the sort of best case and worst case scenario is on, on how we're thinking about this project is the, is the developer and the client, like both, are they both comfortable with this, this best case and worst case scenarios? And then you get in to working on an hourly basis. And if the requirements change, which they usually do, and that's a healthy thing because you learn through seeing the product evolve and you want to iterate, then when it comes time, hey, the client says, hey, we would like to do this. And then you can have a collaborative and unbiased discussion about whether you should add a feature or remove a feature because you're not quibbling about whether that was in scope or not. If you do a fixed bid, as soon as that contract is signed, the, 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 the client's interest is to get as much as they possibly can into that scope. And the developer's interest is to get it done as quickly as possible. And that puts the relationship at, at, at odds a little bit. You know, you don't, you can escape that um, a little bit, but I know we've, I could talk for uh, a whole other podcast on that subject, but those are some of my thoughts. Yeah. And I'm going to point him to you so you can take it further with him, hopefully, and help him out because it definitely sounds like he is pretty frustrated at this point, <laughs> but I appreciate your recommendations. So that's great. I appreciate it. You also reminded me about all the articles we were discussing. So I'll add those in the show notes so that people can actually go and reference uh, the articles we were talking about and your quote estimator or project estimator. I think that's an awesome tool. To yeah, we've got a folks. we've got a product requirements document article on how to define your requirements, which is like the precursor and the, the necessary work that you have to do in order to get an estimate. And then we have another article on how to do a, a software est project estimate. Yeah. 
Perfect. This has been an awesome episode. Is there anything you want to add before we wrap up here today? Well, I could say I thought of a, a fun fact about me that you, we could splice in. We can, we can have it now at the end. We, there, we don't have to go in order, so I don't mind. Okay. <laughs> it's, more, it's, it's just as fun. Okay. Well, I'm working in my van right now, so I had to get out of the house from the, the, the wife and, and kid who's on summer vacation, and I'm just doing my podcast in the van, and I'll be doing another one uh, tomorrow morning. It's my little haven. It's your man cave replacement. Your yeah, van man cave. van. <laughs> awesome. I think it's a new automobile category that's gonna that's already started, but auto, the, the automakers haven't caught on yet. The man van. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, again, Damien, it's been a pleasure. If anyone wants to connect with you, what's the best way for folks to, to reach out and pick your brain or get in contact? I would tell them just go to scalablepath.com and uh, you can fill out our contact form or, you know, better yet, if you're uh, a software developer or project manager or designer and you're looking for work, you can sign up as a freelancer or if you're a client looking for those kind of people, you can click the orange hire now button and tell us all about what you're looking for and we'll get back to you right away. And uh, are we allowed to add your LinkedIn profile to the show notes as well? Oh, yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, thanks, Damien. Thank you again. Thank you, Brendan. You're welcome. Have a good one. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Founder Pack Podcast with Brendan Rod, part of the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share the channel and itsbmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.